Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate to the Provost for Faculty at John Jay College. Welcome to our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia, Assistant Professor of Translation and Interpreting in the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures. Professor Monteoliva Garcia joined the college less than two years ago in the fall of 2017. I begin the interview by asking her what winning the Distinguished Teaching Prize means to her. That can't be true. Um, it's, it's too soon. It's felt too soon. And I know that there, there are many uh, great professors here. So I was very surprised. Uh, but it was a very nice surprise. Um, and I think it is mainly because I, I have such a, um, such a good experience as a student. And I respect my teachers and my professors so much. And I, for me, they are very important people uh, in my life. They mean a lot. So can you tell us about maybe one of the great mentors or professors in your life and what they were like? Okay, yeah, I have, I have quite a few, I have to say. Uh, I, I guess I don't remember the bad ones, which is a good thing. I also had some bad ones, uh, but I don't remember them. Um, I could talk about my PhD advisor. She was great. She was great at, uh, as an advisor. Uh, as a person, she could read me, and we were both very honest from the beginning in terms of how we wanted to work, but she asked me first. She said, this is what the PhD journey is about. We're going to spend a lot of time working together, and how, how do you think you would like to organize yourself? And for me, that was like, oh, okay, I have a voice here from the very beginning, mm -hmm. and I decided I'm going to be just as open as she is, and, and it was from that point we worked uh, I told her how I would like to work she said that she thought it was a good idea and then she was great at um, we set goals and she was great at letting me do things and see things for myself mm -hmm. so I, I have a tendency to make my life complicated and uh, with a PhD that was the case I suddenly found something that I thought oh this is amazing this is interesting and, or a new theory or something, and I got a bit trapped. And, and I came with this idea of, oh, you know, I would like to explore this and that. And she said, okay, do it, do that. And, and um, she let me see for myself whether it worked or not and why before telling me I felt so or I wanted you to find out why it works or why it doesn't work. Uh, so that's maybe the most recent example. Um, in the materials that you submitted for review for the prize, um, you described your work in teaching translation as having a very strong, what you called, social enabling component. Mm -hmm. And that phrase struck me. What do you mean by it, and how does it translate into your teaching practice? Right, well, the, both activities, translation and interpreting, they are very applied, and they are extremely, what I meant by social, um, in, social enabling is that you have a translation. Uh, so translation, uh, written text. And that translation is, is a text that is alive, that is going to travel, that is going to be used for something. So it, it can be a translation of a book that people are going to read, or it can be something as practical as a birth certificate 
or as a criminal record certificate or something like that. And that document can be the document or one of the documents that allows someone to do something or that initiates a process. Mm. Uh, and it's going to be part of someone's narrative or someone's proceedings or of someone's um, life. And I think that's very important uh, when we look at interpreting and translation. So interpreting is even more obvious when you interpret for someone. It's normally uh, a situation that is part of their life, whether it's for work or a personal situation or uh, the doctor's office. So there is something happening there and translation or interpretation uh, makes it possible for whatever it is to happen. And in in the classroom, it's always present in different ways. So from the uh, more um, theoretical theoretical uh, conversations that we have, or conceptualization of what uh, what what we are learning is not just a linguistic activity; it's something else. And we need to consider all those things when we translate a text. And I think maybe one of the clearest examples is the same the same text. Um, will have different translations depending on how it's going to be used and where. So it's from the variety of Spanish that, uh, or, or of English that you need to translate it into to what is it going to be used for. Uh, and so taking into account where, when um, it, it is going to be used, when it was produced. You might have a text that, which was produced eight years ago. And there are social issues that you need to consider. And what do they want it for? Who are going to read it? Uh, all those questions are uh, directly related to social businesses or social um, processes. So that's that's we take it in into account, analyzing, discussing, and considering the decisions that we make. And it might make you choose a term instead of the other, or make it add a note to explain something or not, depending on that context. In the materials you submitted, you listed the attributes of your classes that make learning happen. <laughs> and they are structure, clarity, rules, scaffolded activities, respect and openness. Now, I've been interviewing Distinguished Teaching Prize winners for a while now, and I certainly recognize the second half of that list, scaffolded activities, respect and openness, and I think we've discussed it in the podcast before. But I don't think that I've talked too much about structure, clarity, and rules. And I'm really interested in that. How do structure, clarity, and rules in your classes help students learn? I am a firm believer in routines and in rituals and having a structure for activities. And for instance, in an interpreting class, um, that is something like a, like a structure that is common with some changes. Uh, uh, but a structure applies to both um, activities in the classroom. That is, that is a time which will adjust depending on how the class goes. But I, 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 I arrived uh, every class with with a structure in mind. But I, it also applies to the to the syllabus and 
into how I use Blackboard and how I use the other platforms so that students find it easier to navigate. Uh, and that relates to clarity. And this actually comes from students' evaluation on my first semester here. One of the comments or one of the patterns that I noticed was sometimes there is no clarity or maybe too much information or maybe too little information. And I try to improve uh, that aspect. And I try to be um, clearer in what, when, uh, and how things um, have to happen or things should happen. And, and I think I've, I've improved on, on that. So I try to, I have reduced the amount of information that I give for instructions because I try to, I, I tended to be uh, excessively, do this and that and, that and that and so much information that I think it wasn't working. So now I go more to the point and maybe use a better example and I use much more highlighting or um, elements in the formatting that I think are going to help the student understand better what they have to do. Mm-hmm. And the third one was, was clarity structure and rules. And rules. There and, are, and students have described you as strict, but at the same time they say that you're strict, they also say you're great. <laughs> right, they seem to love, whatever the strictness means or yeah. the rules. What what are the rules? What why do rules matter? There are rules, and they matter a lot. Uh, and uh, I guess this comes from how I was educated at home. So there are there are rules, and I think they are good because rules mean freedom for me. So at home, it was there are rules, and they are reasonable. If they're reasonable rules, uh, and you see the point, and actually they will help me they will make me free and they will help me to feel better in this classroom. Mm-hmm. So I pay a lot of attention to uh, making students feel safe in class and feel comfortable because I want them to come to class and I want them to um, to feel that they are learning in every class. But in order for that to happen, I think rules are necessary. So rules start uh, with simple things like not using the phones, uh, if I don't ask you to, you cannot use your computers. And I, I have to remind them, so now what I do, and I include it in the syllabus, I started this semester, that's that's a rule. Uh, so today, um, when we started the class, I, I said, okay, um, for the following 75 minutes, remember, the world will have to forget about you, and you will have to forget about the world. You're, you're here, we're here together, we have this time, and the, this is where I want you to be. I want you to be here with me. Um, and it works, just saying that and the ex- students accept it. But there are other rules, um, such as uh, some are specifically about language and about communication. And I think they help to not only improve um, uh, linguistic competence, but to also improve how students socialize and how they feel they belong to the class. So say more about that. Um, the fact that those rules exist, so there is one, for instance, uh, and I also include it in the syllabus, is um, email communication. Mm-hmm. So when I started, I said, um, you have to communicate with me in Spanish because I thought this is a learning opportunity and they will, they, they will have, they, they, most of them have more, more opportunities to interact in English. So I thought, let's use these classes to interact uh, in, in Spanish. But what I noticed very quickly was that many students send emails, like blank emails, no subject, no nothing, 
So it's a blank email without, uh, with just an attachment. And first, I find that extremely rude, <laughs> personally. And I think that it's a social function of writing a few lines. Uh, written and a farewell and closing the email. And it's just a thing that makes that introduction that I consider social interaction nicer. Yeah, and more professional. And more professional. So it's a, it is now part of my syllabus. Every co communication, every email that you send me has to be in Spanish. And it has to include um, a greeting and a subject and just a line. Then please find that that's my, my translation or, um, or I cannot find this thing on the platform. Thank you. And your name. And um, I noticed at the beginning they felt a bit like, what is she talking about? What, what is wrong about that? And, and they said like, oh, we don't have time. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah you do. You, you do have 20 seconds or a minute <laughs> to do that. And if you don't, you, you need to find that time because that, that's important time. Um, and I think the message there is first, you can do it. Uh, and I and I show and I give them examples in the syllabus. They have examples in Spanish with different types of greetings and different uh, structures to do that. Um, but then there's a third rule, uh, which is it has to do with spelling and the written accent. Students uh -huh. have lots of issues with the written accent in Spanish, and they have come to accept or believe that they they that they can't use the, the written accent. It's, it's a thing that they, they, they cannot do. Um, and, they, and they said, oh, you know, but the way we write, and, uh, and I know they have seen it in previous courses, uh, most of them, uh, it is true that they struggle. But I tell them, okay, well, you're now on a 300 course, uh, someone on a 400 course, and this is something that you should know how to do. If you don't know how to do, uh, you, you really have to learn because there are more important things that we need to pay attention to. And so I have the rule that if I, I allow three accent mark mistakes, after the third one, in anything they submit, I stop marking and I give it back to them. So there is, a, there is some interaction. So you have more than three. Please revise the rest of the text. You have 48 hours to submit it again. So please have a look at it. And all this comes with handbooks and websites to take and revise, because it's something that you need to drill. And if I spend time on that, that I know that they have seen in previous courses, and they have come to understand that, well, the professor will just add the ones that are missing. I don't think they're going to learn if I do that every time. Um, so I tell them that if they work as translators or the interpreters, in email communication and, of course, in the translation that they submit, uh, spelling mistakes, as basic as the accent mark, are not uh, a good presentation uh, letter for them. And that they, they have an opportunity to try that here with someone that gives them the second chance and a learning opportunity to do that. And those are rules. And, and once students have that initial, oh, really, do, you have, do I have to do that? They pay more attention to that. I, this semester, I have given two back, just two submissions back from students who had uh, more than three accent mark mistakes. And I think the message is you can do it. 
it's worth doing it and it's now the time to do it. in the faculty seminar on adapting teaching to a Hispanic-serving institution. Can you share one or two things that you've learned in that seminar? Sure. I learned many things. Uh, I think the two most important things or the two things that, are, that I keep thinking about and trying to do something about is thinking more um, about where our, our students come from whether they are Hispanic or non-Hispanic, uh, paying more attention to um, what they've done first and how that impacts upon the way they learn or maybe the, um, the support that they need to become better learners. I think there is a lot to do in that. Uh, such as? Well, such as some, sometimes... Um, if they have had, for instance, if their education experience have been, has been mostly in, in, in a language or the other, they might feel a bit frustrated or, uh, or a bit uh, anxious about that. And I think trying to identify that as a factor that can affect um, the way they learn is, is one of the things that, that matters. Um, Another aspect, it is actually related to that, uh, is um, acknowledging that most of our students, and it's, it's certainly a reality for the students I interact with, most of them work and most of them have family responsibilities and most of them have lives with lots of responsibilities. And that also affects their, their learning or their student experience. And so... Um, I take that into account in, in the way I um, scaffold activities or in how I prioritize certain types of activities over um, other types of activities in the classroom and which ones I leave for them to do at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, uh, as I said, I, I think it's something that is relevant for any student. And for me, what I value most about having taken part in, in the seminar and about being still being, being part of a working group is that I am much more aware of, of certain factors that I think are not unique or specific or of Hispanic students. Some are, uh, so some like being more inclusive in terms of the voices that are represented in the curriculum, in their readings, uh, the realities that come that you bring to the class and how to connect with their own experience, uh, treating issues related to identity in the classroom. Um, but also one is um, using the class um, and the materials and the activities to make them feel that they belong to the campus more. And I think this can be uh, done, for instance, when there is a topic um, for which, for instance, for interpreting, for which there is a service here or a professor or a center uh, who, which focuses on that 
topic or a professor who is an expert on gender issues, I bring that reality into the classroom. So in the midterm interpreting exam, uh, we've been talking about gender issues uh, quite a lot this semester. And I've been using the, the Women's Center for Gender Studies a lot as a reality, bringing the, it as a backdrop in the class while I delivered a speech about gender issues. It was framed here at, at John Jay, and I talked about the center and I talked about the services as an introduction and then moved on to the topic. Or for the midterm exam, the situation that I uh, simulated was there were three researchers, three Hispanic researchers who were working on a project and wanted some advice from an expert here on campus uh, who happened to be an expert on gender issues. And I used a real professor here from campus so that students could read about her and and I connected the content that I, the content that I created for the exam with that. And um, together with that, services that are here um, that are available for them, I think if, if we make them part of what we do in the classroom. Probably the students are going to, they're going to mean something more than students, rather than just giving them information about this exists. Um, and there is so much knowledge and so much information that is valuable around them that I think, I always think that would make me feel more part of a place. And I think that the feeling of belonging, of what's going on, of what people do, of what people talk about, and these are all very relevant and very extremely interesting topics. So integrating that in the classroom is something that occurred to me um, after or while I was taking part in the seminar. And I think that is something that applies to, or that could apply to any course and to any student. Is there a typical Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia class period. How do you arrange your class periods? Yes, I think there is. There are always differences, and actually, one of the things that I try to do, as, as I said before, is to try to have some routines and some things that are known to students, because I also think that that makes you feel more comfortable, but also something new, something unexpected, because that also makes you be better prepared, I hope, for instance, for interpreting, anything can happen. <laughs> so you, you need to be uh, ready to, to react. Um, so I try to start, it depends on whether it's an interpreting class or a, or a translation class. But for instance, on an interpreting class, I try to start with some, maybe some feedback, maybe some, some activities that are to start more to start warming up and thinking about uh, what we're gonna do. Uh, but then there's always some more technique uh, focused um, time. And this this can be, for instance, for note taking. So we are in interpreting two, we learned the two main interpreting modes, which are consecutive interpreting and simultaneous interpreting. So consecutive, uh, consecutive you listen to the speaker and take notes, and then for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and then you deliver your interpretation. In simultaneous interpreting, you are interpreting at the same time as the speaker is, is talking. So those two modes uh, have many similarities, but also huge differences in, in the way memory is used, in the types of techniques that you have to develop, in your cognitive skills 
So that first part of the class is, is normally um, focused on that. So memory, acti- memory building activities mm-hmm. or now that we have started um, simultaneous interpreting, we are working on divided attention because being able to do the two lingu- linguistic activities in two languages at the same time, it requires practice and time. And, and for instance, this morning, I was doing um, shadowing with the students, which is instead of interpreting simultaneously, you are just repeating after the speaker in the same language. And this is just to improve the ability to follow the speaker. Um, And so we did that for four or five minutes and then we interpreted the speech also because it was a bit faster than the ones we did last week. So there is always some added layer of difficulty or or something new. It can be the topic, it can be more specialized or it might be faster Um, or might be a a different kind of situation that is new for, for students. But that's the first part. And then we move, we move on to actual practice, interpreting practice. So whether it is consecutive or simultaneous, um, I normally give um, students the topic beforehand because I want them to learn how to prepare for an interpreting assignment. And it, it, it might sound obvious, but it's not. Because most students, the first thing they do is, hey, oh, I go and, and try to find terms in a dictionary and build a glossary like out of the blue but language doesn't happen without a context so um, actually how to prepare a topic is one of the things that I might devote time to in the class if, if I didn't give them the topic beforehand I do that with them so that's also for me is technique uh, or it, it complements the actual inter- interpreting technique and we spend time saying, okay, let's let's we need to learn about whatever topic we're going to interpret uh, about today. Uh, and by but it is by doing that in both languages how we then find out which terms are more um, frequent, which terminology, which acronyms, institutions, um, and so on and so forth. We need to know and we need to learn and which ones we should we should have. Um, at hand while we are interpreting we, we, because we might need to have a look at them. Uh, so that last part of the class is practice yeah, and it's in class and something that I'm doing more um, this semester is there's some changes that I've made from uh, the last previous semester to this one uh, and this was based on uh, also students suggesting uh, students who finished the internship uh, at the court system and they were they were observing interpreters and they were interpreting a little bit and and they mentioned I asked them is there something that you would like uh, that you think now that you've been doing the internship and you've completed the courses is there something that you think you you would change from classes and they said they said well there is there is one thing which is um, interpreting more in front of the class. So they do a lot of interpreting on their computers and they record themselves. And because you want all of them to interpret a lot and to practice a lot. But they said, actually, when you have to come out to the consecutive uh, and you have to be in front of people doing it, uh, 
I think if, if we did it more in class, it would be helpful. So I sacrificed some time to other things um, some days to actually um, ask some of these students to come and do it in front of their, their peers. And that's, that's mostly an interpreting class. A translation class, um, in a translation class, I I really feel like a moderator. I am I become I'm on the side or really at the back of the classroom physically, and we we discuss translations. And this method is working. I'm, I'm very happy with this with some changes that I that I made. So uh, there are translation assignments that students have to work on, and they are scaffolded based on the different types of texts and topics and progressively moving towards more administrative official documents because this course goes before legal translation. So uh, these translation assignments, I, I, uh, I, I, I was going to say I assign or I select two students, but I ask them to volunteer and there are always two who volunteer. So two people have to um, defend or present their translation in front of the class. But the way I used to do it last year and didn't work very well was that I, I asked them to present it and then the others to comment. And I thought, I have to change this. I have to change this. So the difference is that they're defending it so that there's something at stake for them? No. The difference is um, everyone has to translate the text. Everyone. Uh, but two people will be in front of the class. And... What I do now is that I bring the, those two people have to send the translation one day before the class, and then I arrive in the classroom and I and students are um, working in pairs and I give each pair um, a copy of either both translations to that their peers are going to defend, or one of them, or both translations and the original text so that they can see everything. And I give each pair a different focus. And I give them 10 minutes to analyze only that thing that I've given them. I know that they're gonna see many more things, but it is focused. So a pair can have, find three things that you, have, that you think are great solutions. Uh, and that's always included because otherwise it's very easy to go to the negative right. uh, thing. So that's always included. Three things that you think are right or you, you, or you particularly liked. Uh, or um, to another group, um, check what happens with sense uh, and, and with meaning transfer. Another group might be punctuation. So each pair has a different focus. And, and then I sit at the back of the classroom, the two people who are defending are out, and actually they end up being the ones who speak less in the end. Sure. Because what I do, I moderate. So I, I, I start asking, okay, so which pair, I, I, I hand, the, hand the, the assignments out without knowing who has what. And so I ask, who, who had the assignment of finding out three great things? And so they speak and they say, why? Uh, but then others react naturally and uh -huh. say, oh, I also like this thing. And I, and, and, and I encourage that to happen. And, and then the two people who are presenting can reply or not, or I ask them to explain, oh, yeah, I also like that. Why did you do that? Or how did you do that? Uh, and so the whole class, we are analyzing those two translations and the students who are 
parts of the audience are really engaged because they are analyzing those translations, but also sharing, oh, what I did for that, I instead of that, yeah. or they ask, right. I have this, is this also a good solution? Yes, no, why? Yeah. And we and it's all about decision making. And yeah. Well, it sounds like the model of the flipped classroom. Yes. Right? That all the work happens outside, and then they come in and they're ready to really just sort of refine, comment, and analyze the quality of the work they did, which makes sense for why it's so successful for them, because they're already engaged. Yes. And they're ready to take it to the next level. Yeah. And and they also, I think, um, they've all of them are, are shedding doubts, but for me, there is something very important, which is... This decision-making process, I think translation and interpreting are two very demanding activities which are mostly about making decisions. Mm -hmm. And what I want is that students will be able, I want to think that they will be able to make decisions considering what they have as a text and the assignment, and I want them to be able to, to apply all that thinking process that happens in class when they are translated at home, rather than just going to the dictionary, which is their first uh, reaction. What do you want to get better at in your teaching? (laughs) There are many things I want to get better at. Um, I want to get better at maybe not being so creative or not wanting to react to things that I, that I observe. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good observer and I um, maybe the reason why students feel comfortable in class because they, they say it is I think I, I think I notice what's going on and, and I am able to ask in a way that works for them and to to make them feel that they're they're all participating and to encourage those who are not participating so much and, and to moderate in a lot. But that ability to observe things also makes me want to, oh, I observed this thing. Uh, maybe I should, oh, I have, an, I, I have an idea now. I'm going to create this great thing to address this issue that I observed in class. And and my first reaction is, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to create this new assignment and generate uh, a lot of new work for me, a lot of new grading load for me. And sometimes I, I realize afterwards, hang on a second, was, was, was that the right thing to do to react so quickly? Why don't I wait a little bit and, and observe a little bit longer and try to analyze this with more information and think of a better way of addressing it or whether it should be addressed at all now or not or maybe later so i think being able to um adjust is it, a good thing and I, and I and i have learned to create the syllabus in such a way that there is a structure that keeps me on track keeps me on track but which also gives me latitude Mm-hmm. to adjust to that particular group of people that I am working with in that group, in the class, which is going to be different from the one the previous year. Um, but also to control myself from being far too creative and far too, yeah, producing new things. Uh, 
in the spirit of making small adjustments to our teaching that can positively affect student learning. Um, is there one small thing that you do in your teaching that you think others, if they adapted it, could help their students to learn? Huh. Good question. Um, small thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Aspirationally. <laughs> well, I think a small thing, a very small thing that is very basic, um, but it's, it's giving students, sending the message, not only by saying it, but also through your actions, through my actions, that I am there. And what I mean by that is uh, if I ask students to spend that hour or that, that those 75 minutes engaged in the classroom uh, doing whatever we're doing, I have to be just as engaged or more. And this means that I, I want to learn their names, I want to give them a voice, and I want to make them feel that they matter because they matter. Uh, and they how, matter a how lot. How do you make them feel that they matter? Well, I think it's something as basic as treating them with respect as I would treat anyone in general. Um, and asking them, checking, checking with them, for instance, how they felt after an activity. And making sure that it's not all, it is not always the same group of people who answer. Also inviting others to do it without forcing them to do it. But also doing little things that I found that mattered a lot. Uh, maybe this is something very small. But uh, I, I, when I see information that I think, oh, this is really interesting for this for the class or for the students. So. Uh, last year, I tended to. Oh, I just sent an email, uh, and and one of the students who who is very very honest about about teaching, uh, and and I love it. And he said, "I love your classes, but you send so many emails." <laughs> I thought, "Oh my god, this is uh, email fatigue." It, and it's great, but it's sometimes too much information. And I thought, "Okay," but I want to I, I want to make them feel that they matter and that I thought. I saw something that I thought this is interesting uh, and I want to share it with them. So what I do now uh, to try to channel that, I, I send them what I call uh, Friday presents. Oh, so a Friday presents. A Friday. This is an email, like a digest version of your yes. former emails. Yeah, so for every course, every Friday, uh, there is a Friday present. And oh. this is, it might be, are a very interesting article that is related to something in the class or a podcast or for instance last week it was information about the uh, Colombian film festival in New York City and I thought oh, this is interesting so that goes out in that Friday email and um, or it might be a nice short story that I read so I want to encourage them to read a lot so Friday presenters most of the times, uh, things that uh, encourage them to read. And and I didn't know how much they were going to read it or not. And they do because they comment on it. And that's very nice. And I think, I think those things, I know it's not uh, 
maybe it's not a technique or a strategy or anything pedagogical, but I do think it's... It's treating them like humans with intellectual yes. and artistic and cultural interests. Yes, yes, and make them, making them feel you belong to this world now and, and sharing all that with them. And yeah, so maybe that by their presence. And <laughs> it's, it's a small thing, and, but it's, it's, I think it's a nice thing. And I think students uh, value it and appreciate it. Eloisa Monteoliva Garcia, winner of the Distinguished Teaching Prize 2019. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.